And as I thought about which story I wanted to look at first, uh, there was one story that I kept coming back to over and over again. It's a story about a guy named King Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles 20. You know, for most of us followers of Jesus, there are these certain passages, there are these certain stories uh, and scriptures that so mark us, that so impact us, that they, they become sort of these defining uh, verses and passages for us. And we find ourselves just coming back to them uh, throughout our lives. And, and for me, this story in Second Chronicles, uh, chapter 20, is certainly one of them. And so if you have a Bible, uh, I'd invite you to go ahead and open up there, or you can follow along in the Bible app. Uh, but before we jump into this story, let me open this up with a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you for uh, this morning. God, we thank you for the breath and our lungs. And Lord, we just ask that your Spirit would come and be a part of this time, that you would give us eyes to see, and give us ears to hear, and hearts to know. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we think about, uh, before we get into the story, as we think about the book of Chronicles as a whole, first and second Chronicles, uh, just giving you a little bit of background, they were written sometime after the Jewish people came back to Israel from exile. Uh, most likely it was during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, maybe in particular uh, during the, the latter parts of their life. And if you're familiar with that time period, you'll know that much of the hope and the expectations of the returned exiles uh, when they returned to the land, much of those hopes were unfulfilled. They were unrealized. And therefore, in many ways, the post-Israelic community, they, they were pretty disturbed. They were pretty hopeless. And so one of the primary reasons why Chronicles was written was to remind Israel of its history in order to provide hope for its future. In fact, uh, Bible scholar Tim Matthew, in the, uh, he's associated with the Bible Project, he summarized the purpose of Chronicles by saying this, the book calls God's people to look back in order to look ahead, because the past has become the source of hope for the future. And so, just like in this series, we want to look back in order uh, to look, uh, in order to be filled with hope as we think about our future. That too was the purpose behind the book of First and Second Chronicles. And so, that's just a, a brief background to the book. But, but let me give you some specific background now to uh, this guy, King Jehoshaphat, that we're going to be looking at here in a moment. Now again, I don't know, I know we all have, we're coming in from different places and some of the comments we've been able to be familiar with the scriptures and study them, but, but one of the things you have to understand is that this uh, time period is when Israel was uh, divided into two different nations. You have the northern kingdom, uh, you have the kingdom in the north called Israel, and then you have the southern kingdom which is referred to as Judah. And one thing to keep in mind here is that uh, unlike First and Second Kings, which looked at both the northern and the southern kingdoms, Chronicles mainly focuses only on the southern kingdoms and their kings. And, and with that, Chronicles also tends to highlight the more positive facts and, and stories about Judah's kings and about their reigns, uh, which is why some stuff left out, and it's also why there's some additional stories uh, compared to Samuel and, and, and the kings. Although, with that said, even still, the author of Chronicles is not afraid to point out when these kings uh, make mistakes or when they compromise. And the king we're going to look at today, King Jehoshaphat, he uh, is king by and large as one of the good ones. In fact, in the book of Chronicles, he is one of only three kings who are likened and compared to King David. And by far, the story we're going to look at today is his greatest and most defining moment as, as a king and also as a man of faith. 
So again, we'll be looking here at Chronicles chapter 20, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Um, our outline for the, uh, we'll have an outline here to walk us through the passage. It's a very easy chapter outline. It'll be five key words. And, uh, and so that'll be the outline. I think it's in the app there. You can follow along. Uh, but the first key words to walk us through will be the word panic. Let's begin the story now, starting in verse 1. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, with some of the Midianites, they came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, and that army is coming against you from Edom, on the other side of the Dead Sea. It is already at Hayes-Dezon, Tamar, that is in Gedi. Alone, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord, and Jews they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Okay, so let me give some a little bit more added context to the story here. Uh, previous to all of this, Jehoshaphat uh, had been doing pretty good as a king. It's clear when you read chapter 17, which begins to describe the first part of his reign, uh, that he was a man of faith. In fact, uh, in chapter 17, verse 3, it says this. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed in the ways of his father, David, before him. As well, verse 6 says, his heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord. Furthermore, he removed the high places and the Asherah from Judah. And so again, things are looking pretty good for Jehoshaphat. But then you come to chapter 18, verse 1, and you begin to see the first crack in his character. Uh, 18.1 says, Now Jehoshaphat had great wealth and honor, and he allied himself with Ahab by marriage. And you might read that and think, well, why is that a big deal? Why, why is that a problem? Well, the reason that's a problem is because instead of trusting in the Lord alone, and instead of looking to him for safety, Jehoshaphat instead put together a backup plan. You see, King Ahab was uh, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, and Ahab was one bad dude. In fact, the uh, first, first king described uh, him in this way. It says, Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. It goes on to say, Ahab did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all of the kings of Israel before him. And so again, Ahab was one bad dude, but not only was he bad, uh, if you read his uh, life story, his life Jezebel was probably even worse. And so this is the family that Jehoshaphat made into and aligned himself with. And again, you have to understand, he didn't do this because he was in love with Ahab's daughter and he just couldn't help himself. No, he did this. He made this alliance in order to uh, ensure some safety. Although, even with that, that almost immediately backfired on him. Uh, because later on in Second Chronicles 18, uh, Ahab talked Joseph into joining him in a war against another nation. And in that battle, uh, Joseph almost gets killed. Uh, but he cries out and then he cries out to the Lord, and the Lord saves him, and then he said, Ahab gets killed. And so, um, it's a great story, you'll have to look at it later. But, but again, the point I'm trying to make here is that Joseph is a man of faith, but he also has a bad habit of making unholy and improper alliances with ungodly people, particularly when he's afraid. Now, after uh, the whole thing with Ahab in chapter 18, in chapter 19, we read that Jehoshaphat basically led the people of Judah into a season of revival. Uh, he, in that time, appointed judges to help rule the people well. Uh, the, the word of God was being honored among the people. And so things were back to looking pretty good. And then in a little bit out of nowhere, we read here in chapter 20, verse 1, 
that a coalition of three different nations and armies are coming to attack them. And the thing about it here is that the text tells us that they're already on their way. In fact, by the time Jehoshaphat finds out, they're only one marching day away from Jerusalem. And so how does Jehoshaphat and his three respond? Well, he responds in a very human and, I think, appropriate way. He's finished, right? Like, you just got told a vast army of three different nations is coming to attack you, and they're, you know, just a few miles away. And I think if we're being honest, that is an appropriate way to initially respond. See, I don't know about you, but I think it's okay to be alarmed in the initially panic when we are told some hard and some devastating news. Again, that's pretty normal. That's pretty natural for us as human beings. And so what matters is not so much how you initially respond to something, but what matters is how you respond once the shock wears off. You see, the point where I think faith comes into play and the point where faith is tested is after the shock wears off. And so how does Jehoshaphat respond at that point? Well, look at verse, uh, verse 3 tells us that he resolved to inquire of the Lord. And then he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. As well, verse 4 tells us that the people of Judah came together to collectively seek help from the Lord. And so Jehoshaphat, he, he initially panicked, but then he very quickly moved into a place and a posture of seeking the Lord for help. And again, it's not just him, he actually involved the, the whole nation, all of Judah, in that process. Again, it says there that they gathered together from all of the towns of Judah, and they began fasting, and they began seeking the Lord together, which brings us to our next word, or our next movement in the story, and that is prayer. Uh, let's pick it back up in verse 5. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in the front of the new courtyard and said, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hands. No one can withstand you. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your son? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sort of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before the temple that bears your name, and we will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. But now, here are men from Ammon uh, and Moab and Machir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. Our God, will you not now judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I don't know about you or how well you're able to follow that prayer, but, but for me, I think this is one of the greatest prayers in all of the Bible. In fact, I think that this prayer lays out for us a biblical pattern for how you and I are, uh, how you and I can pray. And then he starts off here again, he says, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand. No one can withstand you. You see what Jehoshaphat is doing there when he says, are you not? What he's doing is he's reminding God of who God is and what God is like. In other words, Jehoshaphat starts off this prayer by appealing to God based on his character and his attributes. Again, he's like, Lord, you're, you're the God of our ancestors. 
In other words, Lord, we know you, and you know us. And not only that, but, but you are also the God who's in heaven. And, and, and not only are you our God, but actually, Lord, you rule over all of the nations and kingdoms. And so, God, what that means is that you actually rule over uh, these three nations that are coming to attack us. And, Lord, not only that, but I just want to remind you, in case you forgot, that there's no one like you. There's no one who is as powerful as you are. No one can withstand you. And so, again, he starts this prayer off by praying and saying, Lord, are you not? And he reminds God of who he is and what he's like. But and then look how he prays next in verse 7. He says, Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before you people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham the friend? So again, he, he goes from, Are you not? He did you not. And from there, he begins to remind God of these amazing works and, and amazing miracles that he had done in the past on behalf of his people. And he's like, God, you gave us this land. And you did so in amazing ways by driving off the nations before us. And Lord, you gave it to your friend Abraham and his descendants forever. And so not only is Jehoshaphat appealing to God's works in the past, but if you look here, he's actually appealing to God's promises. You see, actually, in this prayer, in just a few short sentences, Jehoshaphat is alluding to the three main uh, covenants in the Old Testament, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and even the Davidic covenant. In fact, in verse 9, when he's talking about the temple and the sanctuary, he says, Lord, if, if calamity comes upon us, whether it's sort of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name, and we will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. Uh, that, that section right there is almost a direct quote from a prayer that Solomon prayed when he dedicated the temple. And in that, God promised that, that he would help his people if they repented and turned back to him. And Jehoshaphat is basically saying, Lord, we are doing this very thing. We are at the temple. And Lord, we are obviously in distress, and so we are calling out to you. And so again, here with, with part of this prayer, the, the did you not part, Jehoshaphat is reminding God of what he has done and what he has promised to do. Now in verse 10 and 11, he's actually bringing up a, a little historical detail in relation uh, to these three specific nations who are coming to attack them. And, and basically what it is is that if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 2, God told Israel to leave these nations alone, that, that they were not to be uh, messed with or, or to be attacked. And yet, what the host that's bringing them now is, Lord, we, we scared them because you told us to. And look how they're repaying us. Look how they're, they're you know, all the grace and kindness we showed them, now they're coming to attack us. And so he includes that detail in there as a way to make his case before the Lord. And then... He finishes his prayer by saying, listen, verse 12, Our God, will you not now judge me? And you've got to love this last part. I think it's the best part of the prayer. He says, but we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. So then Jehoshaphat, he says, are you not? Did you not? And then finally here, based on all of this evidence, he says, Lord, now will you not? You see, this here, I think, is a pattern for prayer. Like a skilled lawyer or a skilled attorney, Jehoshaphat has appealed to God's character. He has appealed to his password. He's appealed to the promises God has made. And with all of that evidence behind him, he now puts the ball back in God's court. And he says, based on all of that, Lord, will you not now help us? Will you not now keep your word to us? 
And again, you've got to love that last part where he humbles himself and he acknowledges their need. He says, Lord, you have no power to face them. In other words, he's acknowledging, Lord, they're too much for us. We need help. And he says, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are our need. And so this is the second part in our outline, uh, the word prayer. Let's go to the third part of the story, and that is prophecy. Look at verse 13. All the men of Judah with their wives and their children and their little ones stood, before, stood there before the Lord. And the Spirit of the Lord came on Jehoshua, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jeruel, the son of Mataniah, a Levite, and a descendant of Asa. As he stood in the assembly, he said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the black army. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up the path of Zig, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. And you will not have to fight the battle. Pick up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out and face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Okay, so Jehoshaphat and all the people of Judah they are gathered outside of the temple. They've been fasting, they've been seeking the Lord. Jehoshaphat has prayed on behalf of the people. And then in verse 13, it says they're all just standing there before the Lord waiting. Even their little children are with them. And then in response to all of this, as they're waiting, the Holy Spirit comes on and fills a guy named Jehoshaphat who by all accounts was not an official prophet or, or anything like that. He most likely had something to do with, with the, the, either the priesthood or with music or something like that. And yet because the Spirit comes on and he begins to prophesy to the people. In fact, he's very clear that this is a word from the Lord, that this is not just him speaking or it's not wishful thinking. But rather, the Lord is speaking through. And again, it says in verse 15, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or disturbed. Because of the transformation. And so we see here the first thing he tells them is to not be afraid or discouraged. Well, I mean, they have reason to be afraid and discouraged, and so why should they not be? Well, because he says that the battle is not yours, but God. Man, I just love that. I don't know about you, but I find that really encouraging. It's kind of like uh, if a bully is messing with you at school, and your big brother finds out, and he's like, you know what, buddy, don't worry about it. Uh, don't worry about that bully. I'm going to take care of him for you. And you're like, yes, finally. I'm saying someone bigger is going to help me. Someone stronger than me is helping me. And that's what's happening here. And not only does he tell them that the battle is the Lord's, but he even says in verse 17, you don't even have to fight. All you have to do is to, to go out there, to stand firm, to, to just stand there and watch the Lord totally destroy his army. You just show up. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged, and the Lord is going to handle the rest. And I think the thing that makes this, uh, this, this prophetic word uh, really defining is the emphasis on the fact that God's presence is going with them. Again, it says in verse 17, the Lord will be with you. And again, if you go back to the sort of bully analogy, it's like your big brother telling you, you know what, go to school tomorrow, don't be afraid, don't worry, just stand by your locker and wait for the bully to show up, and when he shows up, don't worry, because I'm going to be right there behind you, and I'm going to whoop him, right? Like, 
How many of you wanted an older brother like that? And, that's, and the reason that's encouraging is because his presence is going with the little brother. And so how does Jehoshaphat and the people respond to this prophetic word? Well, that brings us to our next key word, which is praise. Over 18. Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down and worshipped before the Lord. Then some Levites from the Kohathites and Korahites, they stood up and they praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Early in the morning they left to the desert of Tekoa. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah, and the people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophet, and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat anointed, uh, appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out ahead of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord for his love and good forever. Okay, so clearly, Jehoshaphat and the people, they, they believe and they accept this prophetic word from Jehoshaphat. And in response to that, they fall down and they begin to worship and to praise the Lord. But not only that, the next day as they get up and as they head out to the battle, they go to the place where Jehoshaphat said the battle would take place. And as they're on their way, Jehoshaphat exhorts them one last time to have faith in the Lord their God and to believe the prophetic word that was spoken over them. And then Jehoshaphat appoints Kenneth to go out ahead of the army. And they, we see here that they begin to uh, either speak or sing, uh, specifically Psalm 136, which says, Give thanks to the Lord for his love and grace forever. So you have to picture this scene. It's, it's amazing. You're on your way to face an army that is way bigger than you. I mean, humanly speaking, you have zero chance of winning. And yet, because of what was prayed, because of what was spoken prophetically, you march into battle full of hope and full of confidence. In fact, you are so confident you're going to win, you put the choir and the worship leaders in front of your army. I mean, let's think about this. I mean, look, I know our worship pastor is buff and he looks like he can handle himself, right? But most of the worship leaders I've seen, if you just some scrawny guy in skinny jeans and, you know, uh, a nice side part or something, it's not easy who you want to send out before your army, and yet that's what they do here. It brings us to our next, uh, our last keyword, which is provision. Look at verse 22. As they begin to sing and praise the Lord, or as they begin to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. The Ammonites and Moabites rose up against the men from Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. After they finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped to destroy one another. When the men of Judah came to the place that overlooked the desert and looked toward this vast army, they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. So Jehoshaphat and his men, they went down to carry off their plunder, and they found among them a great amount of equipment and clothing and also articles of value, more than they could take away. There was so much plunder that it took them three days to collect it. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of uh, Baraka, where, where, the, where they praised the Lord. This is why the valley of Baraka is to, is to this day. That's why it's called the valley of Baraka to this day. Then, led by Jehoshaphat, all the men of Judah and Jerusalem returned joyfully to Jerusalem. 
For the Lord had given them cause to rejoice over their enemies. They entered Jerusalem, and they went to the temple of the Lord with hearts and lives and hearts. So they're standing here in front of their enemies. Even as the song, uh, I, I'm assuming the song we sang this morning, Raise the Hallelujah, is inspired someone at least like this passage today. They're standing in front of their enemies, praising the Lord. And as they're singing and as they're praising, God ambushes his army. I don't know all of what that means or what that looks like. What, what it appears was part of this ambush was somehow God caused them to be confused or he caused them to, to become suspicious of one another such that they actually begin fighting each other. And so somehow, I don't know, again, God intervened in a supernatural way and he used to end up slaughtering each other. And then you see in verse 24 that as the people of Judah are watching all of this and as they look out over this, this desert area, all they see is dead bodies everywhere. And you know, it says no one is saved. And so they head down and they uh, begin to, I guess, do what you do after a battle. They begin to collect all the plunder. You know, food, weapons, clothing, things like that. And, and apparently, it was so much stuff that it took them three days to collect it all. But I think God right there it shows us just how fast and how big this army was that, that was coming against them. And so they collect this stuff for three days, and then on the fourth day, they begin to praise, or yeah, on the fourth day, they praise the Lord. And then they leave the place and they head back to Jerusalem, and even then they continue to sing and to play music and worship the Lord. And then we read this concluding statement in verse 29 and 30 that says this, The fear of God came on all the surrounding kingdoms when they heard how the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God had given them rest on every side. So, wow, what an incredible story. What an amazing moment in the history of the people of God. So what are we to take away from this? How does this story both teach us how to act, and how does it give us hope for our own day and our own uh, future? So we've gotten through so many good things we could pull from this story, but the first thing that I want to draw out here, and the thing that impacted me the most this week, uh, is actually a warning. And at first, it might not seem obvious based on the story, but, but when you look at Jehoshaphat's life as a whole, this is the thing that really stands out. See, I mentioned earlier that Jehoshaphat was a pretty good dude overall, a good king, but he had this one major habit, this one major flaw that caused him to compromise at different points in his life. And interestingly enough, it was also something his father, King Asa, struggled with as well during his reign. And again, I've already said it earlier, but the habit, the flaw that, that both of them struggled with, it was with making unholy and inappropriate alliances with, with the people and with the nations. You see, I pointed out earlier that Jehoshaphat made an alliance with Ahab, who again was this very, very wicked king. And unfortunately, Jehoshaphat is going to do it again later on in his life with a different king of Israel. Now, I can't prove it, but I think that in today's story that we looked at, that if Jehoshaphat had had more time in between when he found out that these armies were coming to attack him, I think he would have been strongly tempted to look for and to make a, a, an unholy alliance in order to have someone help him out. But again, in today's story, he didn't have time for that. When he found out that these enemies were coming, they were already on the doorstep. They were less than a day away from Jerusalem. So there wasn't any time to get help. And so because of that, because of the tight spot that they were in, he, was, uh, he, he had to trust in the Lord alone. 
and he had to do so without any backup plan. The people both the host of that and his father, their worst moments came when they made unholy and improper alliances. However, their best moments came when they trusted in the Lord of Heaven. And listen, guys, this thing is true to the church. See, I think way too often the people of God, the church, we too can be tempted to make unholy or improper alliances when we're afraid. Instead of trusting the Lord and, and looking to Him alone, we sometimes have looked around to try to find someone or, or something to help us out. Or at the very least, we've looked for a, a backup plan or a, a safety net. I don't want to get too specific here. I, I bet you can guess that some of the things I have in mind as we talk about this. Some ways that the church throughout history or even uh, the church today has made some alliances with, with groups or with people that compromise us. Well, we're like, you know what? I, I know that this group or this person and that person are kind of a mixed bag, but it looks like that they can help us. It looks like they can protect us or benefit us in some way. And yet the warning here, I think, is, and the warning that goes about life is, don't do that. When you're afraid, don't look around for other things or other people to save you. No, instead, look to the Lord. Humble yourself. Acknowledge your need. Get your eyes off of what you're afraid of and get your eyes on the Lord. Get to that place and that posture that, that Jehoshaphat got to where he said, Lord, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. And that brings us to the next thing I want to draw out and emphasize from the story, and that is the importance of desperate, dependent prayer, and also the importance of authentic worship. You see, earlier I talked about Jehoshaphat's prayer and how it can serve as a kind of pattern for our own prayer life. Again, remember, he prayed, Are you now? Where he reminded God of who he is and what he's like. And, and then he prayed, Lord, did he now? Where he reminded God of all that he had done in the past and all that he promised to do in the future. And then he prayed, Lord, will you now? Where he appealed to God to, based on all of that, to move and to act on their behalf. And again, what we see in his prayer, I think, anyway, is a kind of dependence, a desperation on the Lord. The kind of prayer where there's no backup plans, there's no safety net, no Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah, they're putting all their cards on the table. They're all in. You see, when God's people seek God's faith, God always responds. So I think you and I, I think we need to give ourselves over to desperate prayer and faith. But not only that, we also see here in the story just how important and how powerful praise and worship are. You see, for the follower of Jesus, I think dependent prayer and authentic worship, I think these uh, two things are two of our greatest weapons that we have. I mean, when you look at this story, worship and singing and music and praise, it's all over it. They were singing before the battle, they were singing during the battle, and they were singing even after the battle. They prayed their fears, and they sang their trust and their faith in God. And I don't know what it is about singing. I have a terrible voice. I mean, I, it's embarrassing. And, and the worst part is, I was probably like 12 or 13 before I realized I had a bad voice, you know? Like, actually, as a little kid, I would uh, get up in front with another friend of mine, we would sing in front of church. Uh, and then at some point, they stopped asking me. And it was kind of like, well, I would keep asking him, you know? But, but even still, without a size, if you ever hear me, or if my mic's ever on, there's still a lot of grace. I'm, I'm trying to make a beautiful noise for the Lord. But um, anyway, I, I don't know what it is. So even with that, for myself, 
even still, there's something that's powerful about singing and worshiping the Lord. And I, I think in particular, there's something powerful about it when we do it together, when we do it corporately. Again, I don't know quite how it works or why it works, but I just know that somehow, when we sing and we pray, it, it, it takes and it moves what we say, we know we believe about God in our heads, right? The things we know about God in our heads, and it takes it and it moves it 18 inches down into our heads. And so I just want to ask you, how has your faith meter been these last several months? As fear and anxiety have come into your life, has praise and worship come out of your mouth? Have you been singing and praising your trust and your faith in the Lord and in His goodness and in His promises, or have you been letting fear and discouragement run you down and control you? You know, for me, if I'm just being transparent here and honest with you, I, I know that for myself, when, when COVID and everything else hit earlier in the spring, I, I did initially respond with, with, I think, more dependent and desperate prayer uh, and even more worship. But the longer that things have gone on and the more discouraging that they've become, I, I've actually noticed as I was reflecting on this this week that, that at times I've actually prayed less. I've actually, I've actually worshipped less. Instead of consistently praying my fears, I've been dwelling on them. Instead of praising and singing uh, my faith and my trust in the Lord and in His promises, I've been complaining. I'm talking about how hard things are and how hopeless things are. And so I don't know if some of you can relate to that. Or if I'm maybe, maybe I'm the only one in that place today. I, I don't know. But the thing that I love about this passage is the fact that it reminds us that we don't have to pretend. You know, I don't have to get up here and, and act like I have it all together and, and try to convince you of that. I don't. This passage shows us that there's strength and weakness. That there's strength and humility. You see, when you read this story, you quickly realize that Jehoshaphat was strong only because he was humble. And only because he was willing to admit his weakness and his need for the Lord. And so again, I, I don't know where you're at today. Maybe for some of you, you're frustrated right now. Like you're just in this season of renewal and revival in your own life, and, and you're really not having a hard time trusting the Lord. And if that's you, man, praise the Lord. Just keep going and, and strengthen and encourage those around you. But if that's not you, if maybe you're in that place where I'm at, maybe like me, you're struggling. If maybe you're in need of a fresh outpouring of the Spirit, you're in need of God to remind you of His goodness and His mercy. That's where I'm at today. I'm just being honest. I need a fresh outpouring of the Spirit. I need to be reminded of God's promises. You see, as Christians, we don't have a three nation army on their way to attack us. Yeah, at least I don't think so. Okay? But we do have an enemy that's made up of three. It's called the world, the flesh, and the devil. And those things are consistently and constantly coming at us day in and day out. But thankfully, in Jesus Christ, those enemies have been defeated. Now, unfortunately, they're still around, and, and you and I have to resist them. We have to fight against them. But again, through Jesus and through the power of the Spirit, we are able to fight them. We're able to resist them. We don't have to be dominated by them anymore. And so to close here, I, I just want to thank for the prayer, at least for myself. You can relate to this. Maybe as I'm praying, raise your hand. For the prayer of repentance. Prayer of just acknowledge, Lord, I, I have not been seeking your face in these desperate days. I've not been praying with that dependency that I need to. I've not been worshiping you the way that you deserve. 
And then also, we're going to finish here with one last song. You know, normally we've been doing three up front, but I asked if we could finish on a song. And, and this song is going to, uh, we're going to just play it together as a church. We're going to say who God is and what He is like and what He's able to do. And so, let me just close here with a song. Father, Lord, in many ways, I, I know so many of us are feeling the, the strain and the pressure of the days that we're living in. Lord, I, I don't know. I speak to myself, Lord. I acknowledge that I have not, in these last couple months, always looked to you. Lord, that I've not been on my knees praying in a way that I think that the times demand of it. Lord, I've not been keeping my eyes on you in such a way that I, I, I see your beauty and your goodness and I'm able to sustain my faith and my trust in you. So, Lord, I return. I acknowledge I, I've not been doing what I believe you and I would like your people to do. So, Jesus, thank you that in you and in the cross, I have forgiveness. We have forgiveness. Thank you that Jesus, that, that in Jesus, there's always new beginnings. Your mercies are new every day. So, Father, I, I just pray for myself and anyone else here who just is acknowledging, Lord, we need a fresh start for me. Lord, we need to be renewed. We need to be revived. Lord, your church needs revival. We need to remember who you are. We need to remember what you promised to do. We need to remember that nothing will stop the church. But the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. And so would you help us, Lord? Would you fill us with the Spirit? Would you enable us to be the people that you called us to be? So, Lord, I just pray as we sing this last song, would you fill us with hope? Or would you fill us with joy that, that, that no matter what happens in the days and the weeks and the months ahead, you know what, no matter what happens in our country or our own life or even our own church or you were on the throne, that you've overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that for us as followers of Jesus, our future is bright. We have every reason to be hopeful. So remind us of that, Lord. Praise you.